Let's just pray. Bow our heads one more time. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for everyone that's here. I just pray a great blessing on each one of them. I pray that you'll anoint my lips now as I surrender myself to be your vessel and we look at the scriptures. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 23 is where I want to start today. Simple verse. I finally figured it out. (laughs) I finally figured out. You know, when, when sometimes when people come in for the first time and they see what we're doing, they hear the messages, I hear a lot, I can't believe this place isn't packed out. I've heard that a lot over the years. Um, and I've heard that myself. I'm kind of a head-scratcher to me myself. And, um, I, you know, I kind of get two sets of feedback. I get, well, three sets of feedback. I get the people that hate what we're doing, well, what I'm preaching. I get the people who love what I'm preaching. And then I get the people, obviously, who could care less. <laughs> they don't love it or hate it. They just want to move on down the road or whatever. It's not for them. And it finally, I mean, I guess I'm just slow, but I was, I was thinking yesterday. And it finally dawned on me what that's about. So I'm going to share some of that. Uh, with you, right? Uh, and also, then it does say something about people who stick around. So, oftentimes when I'm teaching preaching, I say, uh, I'm talking about you, because I'm trying to give you a picture of who you are, who God made you to be. But I'm doing that, and also talking about you, <laughs> and why you've chosen to hang around, I'm guessing whether you know it or not. Does that work? So Matthew 23, verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 25. Jesus is talking to the um, religious leaders of his day, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Don't you notice how he says that? You cleanse the outside, you leave the inside dirty because you're blind. If you could see, you would cleanse the inside of the cup first, then you don't have to wash the outside. In other words, you can spend all the time, here's what he's saying, you spend all the time polishing the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup still be dirty. But the outside of the cup can be full of filth. But if you spend your time polishing the inside of the cup, then the outside of the cup becomes clean as well without you having to polish it. Make sense? Now, for the sake of continuity, let's tie this in with what we've been doing on the priesthood. Hebrews 9, verse 6, talking about ancient rituals that the priests in Israel carried out. Talking about the tabernacle or where they performed their service. It says, now when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part... 
<clears throat> the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating that this was the, that indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices and offerings, which cannot make him who performs service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only, everybody say only, with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the reformation or reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the body... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal, who offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's basically talking about the same thing. He's basically saying that the old covenant was concerned. I want you to notice. We think they were hung up on, I mean, today we get hung up on all kinds of moral issues that we think are the big ones. You know, we get hung up on adultery, homosexuality, um, stealing, whatever, whatever, right? But notice when he's talking about the law of the old covenant, he says it's concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and cleansing of the flesh. You see that? And he says, but it has no power to touch what's inside. And then he says, what Christ did, what Christ's blood does, is touch something inside you. So that's why I got in so much trouble with people, because I said the blood of Jesus didn't do anything for God, and they said, well, you don't believe in the blood. But the scripture here actually says the blood does something in you and to you. That's the purpose of it. To cleanse your conscience, not to make God feel better about loving you. <laughs> and to cleanse your conscience. And remember, I told you, but for those of you that weren't here, the word conscience there is not just talking about what you feel like you did wrong. It's talking about your consciousness, your awareness of yourself and who you are and how you fit in with stuff. And it cleanses your conscience from dead works. Do you see it? So back to what I was saying, I finally got it. So you also understand I'm a a student of psychology, right? So there is a school of psychology called behaviorism. Has anybody ever heard of that? Okay, behaviorism was started basically by a gentleman by the name of B.F. Skinner. And he wanted to help people. And you can always remember Skinner... Because behaviorism has to do with what's outside your skin. (laughs) And it it still has a place in your life, and it still has a place in therapy. But so here's the idea. If you you 
if you want to change, so people go to therapists, they go to psychologists, oftentimes they come to church because they want to change. And so here's the idea. If you want to change, then let's focus all our attention, all our efforts, and all our energies on, focus, on changing your behaviors. And so a lot... So, so behaviorism was focused on, if you have a problem, it's not how do you feel about it. It's not what are you thinking about this situation. It's not how did you get there, who hurt your feelings, or what did your mommy or daddy do to you, or any of that kind of stuff. It was strictly what behavior in the moment can you change to improve your life. Right? So how many of you have ever heard of Pavlov's dog? All right, so Pavlov was a behaviorist. And he did a series of experiments with dogs. And basically what he did was he offered dog treats, and every time the dog treat would come, he would ring a bell, and the dog would eat the treat. So he'd ring a bell, and the dog would eat the treat. Well, every time the dog would see the treat, when he first started, every time the dog would see the treat, he would salivate. So he would see the treat, and his self would respond by getting hungry and salivating for the treat. And every time he'd ring the bell. Well, then what he found out, and this this is a phenomenal breakthrough in understanding. What he found out was that he could ring the bell and not put the treat in there, and the dog would still salivate. So now, so so there's a there's a stimulus. You understand what I'm saying? The, the food operated as the stimulus that created in the dog the response of salivation, salivating, wanting to eat it, right? But it was being associated with the ding. Ding, ding, ding. So then what happened was he could take away the original stimulus and just ring the bell and get the same response. So the reason, I always blush when I talk about this, but the reason beer ads are built the way they are is because of men and women, who do you suppose is the biggest consumer of beer? Men, right? So for years... Football games, that's why you have so many beer commercials on football games, because who's the biggest consumer of watching football? So they put a beer commercial on, put their label up there, and what usually goes with it? Sexy lady, thank you. Because men can't tell, you know, sorry guys, but or ladies, but, you know, it's kind of like Pavlov's dog treat to us. Now some of you are... More sanctified than that, I guess. But anyway, that's just biology. So it creates a response, and you keep seeing Budweiser. You're watching that game. How many times do you suppose they create that response and associate it with Budweiser? So they're offering the treat, the sexy lady, and they're ringing the bell, Budweiser. So when you walk into a store, liquor store, and you want to go buy beer, and you're looking at the beer aisle, maybe for the first time or whatever, and you're not sure which one you want to consume, but you grew up watching football, especially as a teenager, right? 
Tracking with me? All of a sudden, which one looks the best to you? Why? Ding, ding, ding. See? So they use behaviorism actually against you. Now, this plays out in so many different areas of our lives. So that what happens is the the ring would be called an anchor. Back to Pavlov's dog. The ring would be called an anchor to a specifically manipulated response. Budweiser is specifically manipulating a response in hopes of creating an unconscious psychological anchor that will cause you to buy their product, which is actually the basis for any good advertising. Any good advertising. That's why commercials make no sense. It's like, when you ever watch those commercials and think, what in the world does that have to do with a car? And usually it's they're creating some kind of feeling. Open roads. Like, think of the, who's that guy? Who's that guy that was a real popular actor a while ago? Now he's just, just doing the car commercials. Southern guy. He was in uh, Time to Kill. and Somebody help me out. Yes, Matthew McConaughey. Have you seen the commercials, the car commercials with Matthew McConaughey? So it's Lincoln, right? So it's this, this feeling of freedom, this feeling of power. I mean, that's totally designed to just give you that so that you associate that feeling, that internal response with that particular label. You see it? All of that operates unconsciously. So here's the problem. We have all kinds of triggers and all kinds of anchors that cause us to have certain responses, right? It's all based on behaviorism. That's sort of an outside-in approach. Now, here's the thing. Look how easy that is. Look how easy it is for marketers to manipulate the behaviors of the masses with just about, with, with, with little effort. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So this is, brings me back to where I finally get it. Most churches, and most messages, is built on activity and behavior. You hear about how you have to have the right behaviors. And it's those behaviors that get labeled. It's the behaviors that we don't like, that we've used scripture to validate. Because, <laughs> I mean, and I'm only saying that because it's never the same wherever you go. It's like they have different sets of standards based on wherever you go. Yeah, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? But basically, it's those behaviors that are sins. It's the behavior that upsets your Heavenly Father. Watch how they set this up. It's the behavior of Jesus being fully obedient to his Father that makes him the spotless lamb and the perfect sacrifice. And it is the behavior of God towards you that changes. One of wrath and judgment and sending you to eternal conscious torment to one of love and acceptance and seeing you under the blood of Jesus and bringing you into heaven. Everybody's behavior changed. Oh, 
I forgot there's one behavior I left out. And you must recognize that Jesus did all that for you and do what? Pray the sinner's prayer, which is a behavior. The whole thing's built on behaviorism. Then we want to get you into ministry, get you serving, get you involved, get you doing something, get you giving money, get you out fulfilling your purpose and destiny, which somehow is an extension of what we're doing. (laughs) Or I'll get you to make money so you can bring it back to the house of the Lord. The whole thing's set up on behaviorism. Watch Joel Osteen. Watch any of them. Do you see it? But here's the issue. It's easy. It's a heck of a lot easier than what we're trying to do. It gives a false sense of security because if I can just get my behaviors right, I know what to expect, I know what to do. I don't have to think I don't have to wrestle. I don't have to engage. So your prayer life, so if we did a, a, a how to get your prayers answered, we'd do seven steps to answer prayer. We do marriage conferences. We talk about dating and coming up with romantic ideas and all kinds of communication strategies and conflict resolution strategies. Go to leadership conferences to learn how to change our behavior so that people will want to follow us. The whole thing is structured on cleaning the outside of the dish. That's the point I'm trying to make. Back to what I was saying earlier, what was important to Israel was not who you were sleeping with. What was important to Israel was what food you were eating. It's in the Bible. It's just true. That's why when Peter has... The vision, I'm not saying it wasn't important, I'm just saying what was emphasized. I'm not saying the, the, the former was not important, I'm just saying it wasn't really the emphasis. The emphasis was on what you were eating and who you were spending time with. And on making sure that you were clean so that you could approach God, but clean externally. So the law focuses on what? Um, you shall have no uh, gods before me behavior. Shall not make any engraven image behavior. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. All that stuff based on behavior. You see it? So what's so radical about the new covenant, what's so radical about Jesus, what's so radical about this thing, was that Jesus said all the external washing in the world does absolutely no good. Paul said it this way. He said, you can give everything you have to the poor, but if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. You can have faith that moves mountains, but if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. You can speak in the tongue of men and angels, but if you have not love, it profits you nothing. See it? So he's saying you can have all the right behaviors, but you can have the outside of the dish clean, but if the inside of the dish is still dirty, you miss the whole point. Right? 
But then he says, if you cleanse the outside, if you cleanse the inside of the dish, now see here's, and so here's the focus. If you do the inner work, the outer takes care of itself. So you can focus all the time in the world on the behavior and it do nothing to touch your inner person. But if you start doing the inner work, the outside will take care of itself, which means you've got one job basically and that's do your inner stuff. And that's the one thing that's hard. It's the one thing that's painful. And it's the one thing that people least want to do. And I realized as I was meditating on this yesterday, I realized everything I've done, everything I've preached, you can go back three, two years, three years, everything I've preached, I haven't done any of the behaviorism stuff. I haven't come up in with steps to anything. And people say, well, you're not practical. Because they're looking for practical to be give me something to do. But what we're focusing on is the inward cleansing. And that is what the Melchizedek priesthood is all about. It's about the water from above descending to cleanse the heart. Make sense? Now, to cleanse your conscience from what? Let's look at this just real quick and we'll be done. Genesis 15. To cleanse your conscience from what? You guys have such good memories. How much more can the blood of Christ cleanse your consciousness? Cleanse your consciousness, your inward person, your inward awareness, your thought and feeling processes from what? From dead works. Now, you cannot think about dead works as behaviors. He's talking about the works of your inner person being dead. The works of your inner person. Cleanse your consciousness from dead works. See, we translated it, cleanse your conscience from all the things you did wrong. But in the original language, it's not just conscience, it's consciousness. And your consciousness works. Let me show it to you in Abraham. You've seen this before, but let's think about it this way. Genesis 15, he meets with Melchizedek. Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis 14, he meets with Melchizedek. Genesis 15, verse 1, after these things, after he meets Melchizedek, and what does Melchizedek do? He brings out the bread and the wine. What does the bread and the wine represent? We just did it today. The body and blood and the blood does what cleanses what the inner person which is why the church said you had to consume it because it's symbolic of the act that as you internalize that you're setting your intention for what christ did to go into you to bring a cleansing so melchizedek meets abram and brings out Bread and wine. So what's happening to Abram? He's being cleansed. We get a window into the cleansing so that we can see how it works. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, inward. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But first dead work, he was afraid. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? 
And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, this is bumming Abram out. But basically what he's doing is projecting into the future based on his current circumstances. He's looking at who will be his heir before he dies. <laughs> Eliezer could get killed in a car accident tomorrow. Well, okay. <laughs> Eliezer could get gorged by a bull tomorrow. Trampled by a ram. or Right? So, so we're not talking about something out here. We're talking about an internal projection based on the story that he's telling himself, based on how he's interpreting his circumstances. So he's afraid, that's a dead work. And he's meditating upon his problem, that's a dead work. And he's telling a story to himself over and over again that has caused him to lose hope, that's a dead work. And he's cutting himself off from the destiny of who he could be and become, that's a dead work. See it? Then the Lord said to him, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Come with me to Romans chapter 4 real quick. And we'll be done. I know I said that last one was it, but I know, Joanne. You know, you know how I am. I'm going to finish early today anyway. So he's talking about, in verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If he was justified by behaviors, if the word justified means to be made right in the sight of God. So basically what Paul's saying here, if he was made right in the sight of God by behaviors, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because men can see your behaviors. God looks on the... For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Do you see it? An internal action is what made him right with God. But in order for him to have an internal action, there had to be a cleansing of all the stuff, all the death that he was doing between his ears. Am I boring you? I'm sorry if I'm boring you. He brought him out is the word for exodus. He took him through an exodus, but not an exodus out of physical bondage, an exodus out of mental, emotional, and spiritual bondage. He took him out of the box of his own thinking. Basically, he's saying, this is my 
lot in life. This is my reality. This is what I'm going to get. And so this is what we do to ourselves. We repeat the same stories and the same thoughts over and over and over again that generate the same emotional states. And they run like loops and patterns. And so what happens is that the word of the Lord comes in and engages those patterns for the purpose of taking you through an exodus to get you stuck out of the pattern, get stuck out of the box of your own limited thinking. So here's the thing about holiness. Ready for this? Here's the thing about holiness. Holiness in the Old Testament really had very little to do, almost nothing to do, with your moral behavior. I'm going to say it again. Holiness in the Old Testament had almost nothing to do with moral behavior. It had everything to do with proximity with the presence of God. So the presence of God is carried in the ark, and the ark sits in the temple behind a veil, and that place is called what? Most holy. Most, or yeah, holy of holies. Most holy. This is the holiest place because it's the closest to the presence of God. Then you had the holy place. Then you had the outer court where only the Israelites or the holy people could come in. Then you had everybody else who was unclean. So you are either holy or you are unclean. But the further you are from the presence of God, it determines whether or not you're clean or holy. So the idea was anything that you did that made you unclean had to be cleansed, had to be washed. And that was the purpose of the priesthood so that you could approach the presence of God. So here's where we've got it all messed up. We tell people if you're going to have fellowship with God, you've got to get right. You gotta get your behaviors right, you gotta get things sorted out. Otherwise, God can't love you, God can't have fellowship with you, you can't have, and, and we equate holiness with behaviors. Holiness has nothing to do with behaviors, it has to do with proximity to God. So you do not become holy by changing your behavior, you become holy by being cleansed and being near to the presence of God, and neither one of those are things that you do. You become cleansed by the blood of Christ so that you can be in the presence of his holiness and when you're there, you're holy. When you're not there, you're not holy. And so the way this thing is supposed to work is you don't fix your problem by trying to figure out how to fix your problem. See, here, I mean, here's the thing. If I say, okay, your, your mind has dead works then we can all run off to, you know, therapists. And I have a therapist I see every week. I have no shame in telling people that. So I believe in therapy. And I'm try- I tell people that because I'm trying to break the stigma of it because there's a lot of people that need to go for therapy, but they're afraid they're one of those people that's messed up. So I just got news for you. I'm one of those people. But if all you do is your own mental work, is still just replacing one dead work for another dead work. It's not a cleansing of the conscience. The cleansing of the conscience comes when you engage with the presence of God. 
Not because of anything you did to make you holy, but because of what he did to make you holy. Understanding on your worst day, your most messed up self, you can engage the presence of God. You can engage it by faith and expect that God will speak to you. Expect that God will respond to you. And you learn the inner workings of the Spirit. And as you learn the inner workings of the Spirit, you see how God engages your heart. You see how God engages your mind. And it's out of that process that Abram was cleansed. Inwardly. So you, you don't cleanse yourself. So that the really, the key to the whole thing is just a constant engaging the presence of God. A constant engaging by faith the person of Christ. A constant standing there and saying, Lord, I feel ashamed. Lord, I feel dirty. Lord, I feel like I'm stuck in a pattern. Lord, I feel hopeless. Lord, I feel whatever. But I'm engaging your presence by faith. I thank you that you're with me. Love me, that you love me unconditionally. Totally accept me for who I am. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm asking you to engage my consciousness so that I can be cleansed from dead works, so that I might serve the living God. If you just do that on a daily basis, your whole life will begin to change. Because what will happen is the inside of the dish will be cleansed, and then the outside will be cleansed also. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for this word. Pray you'll seal it to them in their hearts and minds. Pray I made it somewhat practical. In Jesus' name, amen.